Hey, look, there's a picture of Popey. Oh. Oh, he looks so happy. That was a surprise. I bet he smells good there, too. Okay, I like the comment as well. His laptop is as well. What the hell are you using yeah. as a laptop? Is that your phone, Popey, that you have hooked up to a keyboard ten times the size of your phone? What is that? That was... That was for him because he wanted a photo of a phone doing convergency stuff. But the one on the <laughs> other side is a ThinkPad. That is it. Why it appeared in our ThinkPads. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, I like the image text where the desktop was. The phone is now, says Alan Stroking, the rich mahogany Louis XVS kid. <laughs> yeah, really. Stroking the rich mahogany Louis. Now, what kind of. Uh, that is a heck of a keyboard. Is there a lot of battery in that thing? What's going on with that? Why is with it so what, big? The, the Logitech one, it's so you could you could sit a tablet in it, and uh, but it's only got a double A and it lasts forever. Like it lasts yeah. a year. Well, I've got one. It's brilliant. Oh, I love. I have a. Oh, so it's not that thick. So I have a Logitech that's because that looks really thick in the picture. And the Logitech it I have is quite thick. Oh, okay. but it's quite sturdy. <laughs> It's, it's it's quite. It's I think about it's a like centimeter and a half thick, Chris, which is about nah. four furlongs or something. <laughs> Yeah, some of the students in the school of work has got something like that for life huh. as well. Well, there you go. Either way, you can tell that's a man who smells good. That's all I know. Look at that USB cable too there. Look at that. That's yeah, a nice yeah. flat USB cable. I like that, Popey. Stylish. Is that that's an internet phone stuff. there on the table too? You got an iPhone 4 or something there? What is that? There's no iPhones there. That's a BQ phone. Oh, Duh. okay. Okay. Well, they all kind of look alike these days. There's Ubuntu phones. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I moved all of the uh, non-Ubuntu phones out of the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> He's done this thing before. Smart man. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 139 for April 5th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's celebrating Wes's upcoming birthday with a little birthday beer that he brought himself. <laughs> My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hey, Wes. Happy early birthday. Well, thank you, you sir. <laughs> and thanks for bringing your birthday beer today. Anytime. Every time. <laughs> well, coming up on today's episode of the Unplugged program, we're going to do some updates on our favorite open source projects like we always do. And here are some of those directly from the horse's mouth. Then, in the in the uh, second half of the show, if you will, we're going to try out a brand new distribution that promises to be beautiful, elegant, up-to-date, fast, ultra-customized, and arch-based. And it's not a distro you've probably heard of before. Yes, kids, we're going to look at this guy and tell you if it truly is something you want to take out on a rig like yours. Maybe Wes has sacrificed his own rig for you to find out. Stand by. We'll tell you about that in a little bit. After that, I got to admit it. I've been bit a little bit by the hype bug. I want to play with virtual reality, Wes. But in Linux land, there's not much going on. Or is there? Is there a virtual reality desktop environment? Are there projects available for Linux users right now? If you have virtual reality hardware, we're going to take a look at the state of virtual reality under Linux and some of the things you could play on right now. And some of the interesting things that Wes and I discovered when we were digging around about the state of VR under Linux, too, which is just kind of an interesting tidbits that we're going to share. Plus, we got a whole bunch of other things in today's show. But to top it all off, I did mention we were drinking birthday beers. Wes brought in something fun, uh, and I think the mom room is going to give us a hard time about this one. So maybe we'll bring them in first before we really read this one. Time-appropriate greetings, mumble room. Hello. 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 Okay, now, you got to forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so you got to forgive me because I'm just going to read it the way I see it. Crikey IPA. 
an American Indian Pale Ale. Uh, Crikey IPA, there you go. It's got an 89 beer score, 90 from the community. It's an American IPA with a 6.8 alcohol by volume from uh, Ruben's Brews in, can you guess where, Wes? Do you know where it's brewed? Yes, I do. Go ahead. Seattle, Washington. That's right. It's a local brew, ladies and gentlemen, so that's what we're drinking on today's episode. I thought that R was sexy. Yeah? Yeah, you're right. That is it. It reminds me of Rainier a little bit. That's what they're going for there. So we have much to talk about today. Um, and there's a topic that we haven't floated before. Oh, we, or did we actually talk about this on the show? Did this ever come up on the show, or is it only something we've talked about behind the scenes? I'm not sure. I don't know either, because it's a big deal. It's very scary. Developers have warned us over and over again about uncorrectable issues and freedom problems. Yes, Freedom. freedom. No, <laughs> no, I'm talking freedom problems. Negative in the freedom dimension. X86 is just getting a bad rap these days. And another developer, a long developer involved in Core Boot, Libreboot, is trying to call attention to the uncorrectable freedom and security issues on the x86 platform in a newly uh, freshened uh, post uh, – in a newly freshened um, um, attempt to get everybody to realize that post-2009 Intel systems and post-2013 AMD systems have massive flaws. This is um, – Mainly, uh, he he argues in the fact that you have these management platforms, the Intel management engine and the AMD uh, security processor, which require these uh, binary-only blobs that have major vulnerabilities in them. And uh, he also has issues with UF, UEFI Secure Boot, and he wants the community, he is calling upon the community to make a move to ARM, Power, MIPS, or even RISC-V processors. He does then provide a summary that is not very exciting about making that move. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it is a good summary of the state of the available. Now, this is a topic I think that has particularly uh, tickled your interest for a little while. What is it about the whole concept? Because you've you've been tracking the story since a couple of other reports recently that have said, you know, we have to abandon x86 immediately. We must move to another platform if security is is, uh, at all important to you. What is it about this x86 story that keeps grabbing your attention? I just think it's not brought up that much. I mean, it comes up occasionally. That's why it piques my interest when it does. And you just don't hear very much about it. Some of these features are really useful, a lot of, you know, especially enterprise management. But in particular, like, I haven't heard very much about the AMD, you know, the platform yes, security true, processor. True, That's true, not talked very yeah. much. And obviously, we're not going to all drop x86. But as we see ARM coming up, which again has some problems in some implementations, but I don't know. So, Daredevilin in the mumble room, I know you have some thoughts on this one. Share it with us, sir. So I'd start with, first of all, it's interesting that now there is a competitor that is trying to get into that realm, that there is more research about the actual security of this, mm. um, who who should be financing this, this research. I mean, not saying that the research is biased, I'm saying that there is financing towards researching the issue. Nothing says that there isn't uh, the similar issues uh, on the other platforms or right. the other architectures. So we need, you know, it took us years until we realized those things. Um, and having that said, um, the secure boot scenario is all about you start by opting for devices that actually allow you to control the keys you have in the device, moving towards, you know, the ability to then replace the thing when we have a free software implementation of it. And since there's interest in the public, developments are happening. Something something about the idea seems um, fantastical to me, like that we would all make a huge migration, like like a migration west. Like we all yeah. get in our uh, our low-powered, uh, under-resourced, 
arm machines and we just all double down on arm or something like that. I'm not saying it'd be arm, yeah. but the idea of one day all of us just sort of mass migrating away from x86 is right now seems ludicrous, but it could start to happen. I think it will start to happen at least for once and maybe it is already there. ARM beats out the chips from 2009 and 2013. If you are concerned about security, right, there's people who buy the older laptops, so you can still get core boot on them. Oh, boy, that's not a good solution right. though, at so all. At some point, that will cross with where ARM is going in terms of capabilities. Huh. huh. So that's, that's but, a start, but obviously that won't be the mass market. But to be fair, your primary computing device almost certainly is an ARM device right now. My phone? Yeah. I don't know if I'd classify it yet as my primary, but it's definitely... Um, Maybe, Damn close. Maybe not you. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not you. But I think you, as in the average person who is considering this a ludicrous proposal, might actually then pull out. You know, they're they're, they're probably even reading that article on an arm device. You know? yeah, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're probably right. I have right. been I have been shocked at how many people I now know that their primary computing device is. Uh, is is a is a phone. I was uh, I already showed the, I already sh- uh, shared the story on Coda Radio, so I'll just make it super brief. But the community I live in, um, a lot of people there uh, are just using their phones as their primary computer, and wow. we have like community events. That, you know, we're all like we had a, we had a Thanksgiving event, we had an Easter event, and a, and a Christmas event. It's adorable, and uh, it, when we get together. Um, it is interesting how technically they are very aware that they could like, – it's not like they don't have a computer because they are scared of them. They have them at work. Uh, but in their estimation, they can do everything they need on their phone, including like they were doing the healthcare.gov stuff. Like they're getting healthcare wow. exchange <laughs> coverage on their phone. Um, uh, and and then when they need a computer, they just do it at work. And so I think you're right, Popey. I think for a lot of people – and that's kind of where I was going where I could see this is what if a vendor like – Dell or or Apple came out with a really successful ARM-based laptop, I'd also peel off a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. I don't know about for me, let's though. Stay, let's stay focused on the issue, though. The issue is non-free firmware or non-free code. You're right. Running yeah. at a higher privilege level. And almost every ARM device has that, a proprietary blob that runs in the trust zone. If you buy anything yeah. from yeah. Qualcomm, you have to run their trust zone. Yeah. And there's no way for you to know what's actually inside that. Yeah. And so yeah. it's really no better than Intel's management engine. Yeah, that's your primary that, issue, You're right? Go ahead, Wimby. And that trust zone has been riddled with security issues for a long, long time. Well. Yep. Isn't this just depressing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Come on, guys. You're supposed to make you feel better. Seems like the best bet. You know what? Actually, you know what I've heard people talking about? Um, uh, not uh, Not risk. But uh, what is it? Uh, what was the uh, what is the CPU design that was originally from Spark? Right? Isn't yeah, Spark, Spark open source? Aren't Spark chips like? Uh, isn't like the entire Spark design completely open source? The yeah, chip is open source, so. and I think Fujitsu still produces some. But all the new ones made by Oracle are completely locked down. They don't yeah, release yeah, any I of think, the specs for those. I think the old ones, all the Verilog is out there, isn't it? Okay. Okay. North Range. So there is. Oh, go ahead. There is at least IBM's power. So if you look at like the Talos yes. workstation, yeah. at least all of the code that's running on that is open, even if the chip design is not. Sure. Right. Sure. North Ranger, did you get a chance to jump in with what you wanted to mention? Yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's already been alluded to a little bit, but uh, you know even if you swap out the platform, uh, you know with a CPU that uh, can be booted in an open manner, um, we're still going to be stuck with peripheral peripherals that have. Uh, binary blobs, even if they're not binary blobs that have to sure. be loaded by the OS, you know, your hard drive um, has 
basically an OS running on it to manage all the flash. But chips none of that, though, as, is as critical as your CPU. Like if the CPU is the core source of either if we're just if we're just if we're just concerned about blobs or really security issues, then that's a fundamental problem. If a peripheral is, that's not as egregious. It's still egregious. Uh, well, but not in the as. case of a hard drive, it could be pretty egregious. Yeah, it could it control what data you're accessing. And so it could put in whatever data it wants. Okay. Well, I've seen examples of that. Oh, ooh, Wimpy's got something for the show notes I will add to. Yes, OpenSpark. Right, exactly. Very good. Hmm. Yep. Well, there you have it. Is, it doesn't sound like we – even though we've had we've, – and it's interesting you've been following the story for a little while, Wes. It's interesting you've been following this push and yet we don't really have a super clear alternative that doesn't also have its set of downsides. I like to bring myself down. And not to mention not to mention that we've now got decades of uh, R&D into x86 and yep. software built around and all of that. Speaking of decades, speaking of decades – that whole uh, SCO versus Linux, uh, don't believe what you've read. It's actually still around. Again? Yeah, the SCO versus IBM is alive 13 years later and continuing. Now, if you know what? You might not even have been alive if you're listening to this show when this lawsuit <laughs> started. So at its core, the SCO group, which was then named Caldera Systems, filed a lawsuit against IBM in March of 20, or I'm sorry, 2003. Uh, for allegedly contributing to uh, uh, contributing sections of the commercial Unix code from the Unix system in it to SCO's from SCO uh, to the Linux kernel code base, SCO Group claimed that the alleged presence of, of its proprietary code in the open source code named Linux devalued its proprietary code's value, and so therefore they were suing IBM for that. Along the way, SCO filed for bankruptcy, and the group claimed that anyone who used Linux owed them money. All the while, Novell successfully claimed ownership of the allegedly infringing code and then said, okay, everybody's going to be indemnified from it if you run on Linux. But all of that has not stopped the SCO group from continuing its battle with IBM. The group on Wednesday, which is last Wednesday, did not actually reveal the nature of their appeal. Only as a solely as, a, as solely as a notice to the appeals court that they would be lodging an appeal soon. <laughs> so they're not. It's not SCO versus IBM, which is one of the oldest stories I've been following. Is still <laughs> not done. It's still not done. It's unbelievable. One of the first stories tracked for Linux Action Show. Really incredible. Um, <clears throat> all right. I don't want to go into all the April Fools this week. Last this past week, there was a lot of April Fools shenanigans. Uh, but one I thought was particularly good because you know, like what Think Geek does is Think Geek has these products sometimes as as April Fools, and then people want it so much that Think Geek actually ends up making it. Yep. I think that's what's going to happen to the KDE project. The KDE project, I think, uh, ended up with an April Fools that they're going to have to make. Uh, they the on April first they posted Plasma five point seven will let you log in through an online account. KDE is going to provide an own cloud installation to let Plasma and KDE PIM users sync their data. You can already use own cloud with Cardav and Caldav uh, to get your calendars and things like that synced. Uh, and now, and now, you will be able to use own cloud to sync Plasma configurations and manage them. Work will be when your work is completed. You'll be able to load a Plasma session by specifying your username and password in an own cloud provider. That's right, and then you can log into your KDE desktop and have your settings synced via OwnCloud in Plasma 5.7. A massive feature, Wes, a massive feature. Now I kind of want it. I know, right? So did everybody else. So, haha, April Fool's. That was a super funny <laughs> April Fool's, everybody. Super funny April Fool's. It reminds uh, me of Ubuntu one. What was the Ubuntu one? I don't remember that. Oh, it wasn't Ubuntu one, the thing of the cloud that you could also put your backups in there service that was discontinued at some point yes Dropbox yes. like yes 
now, but they got enough people's attention. They say they're actually. It happened that they were already going to be meeting at the uh, at their uh, VD, VDG, you know, the, the developers group yep. meeting that they have, and so they're like, people are really excited about this April Fools. Um, and so they looked at it and they're like, God, you know, there might actually be ways we could actually accomplish some of this. Now, not the login stuff, but integrating more syncing stuff, uh, better place to store uh, stuff in own cloud. It looks like they actually looked at some of the ideas from the April Fools and went, Maybe not we're trying just- to be negative. It just seems like a huge expense. Uh, for very little benefit. But well, not the opinion. login part, not the login part, but some of the other file syncing stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wimby, you were uh, you were mentioning Google's uh, April Fools. That didn't go over so well. I heard some people got really upset yeah. about that. Um, did you go? Where'd you go, Wimby? Where'd you I go? Think, oh, uh, hello. Hi. I I think the people at Google need to remember they've been employed to be um, kick-ass engineers and various other roles, <laughs> and none of them are employed employed to be full-time comedians. Yeah. And they should just knock this on the head. It's very tiresome. And, you know, they're, they're April Fool's this year. A couple of them went bad, and none of them were very good. And wh- what happened to the halcyon days of the Google April Fool's, like, you know, Google Glass and Nexus Q? I mean, those were cracking. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> those were hilarious. Uh, uh, I, I saw some people that were tweeting, like, they were writing, like, condolences emails to people who had – to family members who had had somebody passed away. And it inserted that mic drop thing. And anyways, people were upset. Oh. So it might be some fun stuff coming out of Plasma soon. Uh, and also, KDE has come up with a vision for the future that, uh, well, I'll read it to you. The KDE statement for their vision is a world in which everyone has control over their digital life and enjoys freedom and privacy. Uh, they go more expanded, it goes on. But in greater detail, their vision has no geographical barriers. KDE should be able to be available to everyone. KDE wants to put their users in the driver's seat. And KDE wants people to control all aspects of their digital lives. Okay. Hard to object to. That is the KDE vision, and you can find out more at .kde.org. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting thing. I wonder – I wonder. Uh, so the group that put this together, I wonder how much connection this actually has to people that are actually writing code. That's always something I kind of wonder. When I, when I watch the KDE project from afar, I, I get kind of confused about what is actually directly connected to the project and what is just sort of like people who are associated with the project that do in the project's name. And I've been running the Plasma 5.6 desktop um, since about uh, five days since before Plasma 5.6 or maybe seven days before Plasma 5.6 was released to final. And now I've been, running, I've been running it since then. So I guess I'm coming on like – I must be on almost a month now. And just recently I'm starting to have issues on this Intel Skylake machine. But I, I, have, I, have, really, I have really profoundly changed my position on the Plasma desktop. And it, it no longer – with each release of, of the Plasma desktop, I have felt like there's just a couple of things that were really fundamentally broken that didn't work for me. For a while, it was sound. was yeah. really bad. Then being able to go in there and understanding like when they – at one point, I think it was like in 5.4 or 5.5, when they updated the sound or the multimedia uh, system control panel where you could go and disable hardware devices. So as a process of elimination, I could make the right sound card work. That was a huge game changer for me. Uh, and when the stability got so that way I didn't just when – the, when the session was idle, I would sometimes just have the plasma shell crash when those things stopped happening. You know, that was another game changer yep. for me. And so 5.6 has been really a great, great release. But at the same time, as much as I see improvement, I see a lot, uh, a lot of room for continued improvement still. And uh, last week we covered a mailing post that uh, Mr. Brown, who is in our uh, mumble room right now, who hails us from the uh, SUSE project, wrote up 
And, I, and he sent it in uh, to the uh, KDE mailing list. And, and if you guys recall, he talked about how there's multiple text editors and multiple start menus. And there's, there's so much going on in there that it might need a little refinement. And I don't want to actually make it too clumsy. So, uh, Mr. Brown, if you wanted to uh, maybe just really recap really briefly for our audience who didn't catch the episode last week, kind of what your message was in this mailing list post – uh, because I thought it, it nailed my thoughts. I thought you were actually really able to verbalize some of the things that I've been thinking uh, in a really clear, cognizant way that wasn't hostile, that came from a place of, I love what you're doing, I love everything we've accomplished, but we still have room to go. And so would you mind summarizing your post really quick for the audience? Yeah, I, I don't mind at all. I mean, yeah, it comes from a lot of the discussions we're having with the KDE project at the moment about uh, well, uh, their relationships with distributions, you know, some pain points with our uh, packages and stuff like that. And the the conversation kind of ended up talking a little bit broader about sort of just distribution positioning and stuff generally. And yeah, the the key message that I wanted to kind of get across is, yeah, there's, there's parts of the KDE stack which are absolutely phenomenal and of good quality and great. But if you look at kind of KDE as a whole, it's hard to get a, a handle on what the project is trying to do. It's it's uh, and and if you ask like three different KDE developers, you generally get three different answers on pretty much everything. And I mean, you made actually, a you made a point that that clearly translates to what the what that happens is the KDE project in the Plasma desktop is not messaging to the distros what's awesome about the Plasma desktop, so then they can't turn around and 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 relay that to their users. They don't they don't. There's like a disconnect there and. Uh, so that's sort of the big problem. We, so what you just said, the big, the, the end result is, is KDE actually has to. It's KDE doesn't just market to end users; it also has to market to distro makers themselves too. Yeah, and and there's there's like little snippets and like little glimmers of what I think is a, a wonderful. Well, I don't want to use the word vision because they're using it now. Uh, mission goal, whatever. Sure. Of of like, like from what some of their plasma maintainers of like just thinking of plasma as. A workspace and thinking of the applications as something different. And if you think of it as something different, which is clearly a mindset that some of the KDE project have, a lot of these problems and pain points go away because all of these duplicate applications are suddenly available to not be included. You know, if you stop thinking of KDE as a huge stack, but as a pick and mix selection of technologies you might want to put in your distribution, things get really exciting again. Sure. But the whole project isn't angled in that direction yet the messaging's not there there's, well you, well, you know when you think of links. as an end user when you think of the plasma desktop don't you aren't you isn't one of the things you think about is how well all of the applications integrate and how they all play off each other and how it's a whole suite like i mean when i think of the kde desktop i think of plasma 5.6 i think of um all of the text editors i even maybe consider k office included in that i mean i think of the entire suite when i think of the plasma desktop you think that way, but the KDE project is no longer working in that way. So it's, is that a smart thing to have those expectations so far divorced from each other? Hmm. If you haven't got maintainers on the KDE side maintaining all of that stuff to the same level as the Plasma guys and the K-Wing guys, aren't you just right. setting yourself up for disappointment and failure at some point? Right, yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's actually a great point. So, But how does a project like KDE, which – has been labeled in the past as a bit chaotic. How does a project like that come together and say we're gonna we're gonna unite around a single editor? We're gonna unite around a single this or that? Or is that the job of a distribution? And and if that's the job of the distribution, why has it never happened? 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a tough answer. I mean, the I think there is room in KDE for um, some kind of leadership in that area, of like just people stepping up and saying, "Okay, we're going to make some of these tough j- choices." It, it won't make those people friends, just like some of the changes no made didn't make necessarily make certain people friends. But in the long run, it's proven to be a pretty good thing. I think that might be part of it. The other part of the distributions is the other stuff that we were talking about before we got onto this conversation of of like these, um, I was going to say 100 paper cuts, but at the moment it feels a bit more like a 1,000 of mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. living with the KDE stack, packaging the KDE stack, handling, uh, you know, new new yeah, new yeah dependencies, new changes, and, and we're having a bit of a hard time getting like the communication from them as the developers of like, what are they expecting from us? What, where... What dependencies do they need? What versions of X, Y, and Z? We just get these big old tables and ex- expected to get it out there in the in our users' hands as fast as possible, and that can be really tough sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you also really effectively broke down the rather dominant position that GTK-based desktops are in versus Qt-based desktops, and I find that to be um, not. Not shocking and not a huge surprise, but if you walk into a room of Linux nerds and uh, you ask people to raise their hands um, on what they prefer, Qt or GTK, a lot of people are going to raise their hands for Qt uh, in terms of application development. A lot of people would say well, Qt is superior or Qt, yet um, – yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you do the math. Raising my hands, but I use GNOME. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of in the same. I mean, I'm using Plasma right now, but I, I'm kind of in the same boat. So, what, what's going on here? Why, why has GNOME or GTK desktops essentially dominated the the top positions uh, on DistroWatch and the, and, the, and the larger distros? Um, when Plasma desktops been around for a long time, the Qt technology is pretty advanced. You have folks like Canonical who are investing a ton of resources into it. What are your thoughts there? I think it's a case of of just like hitting that sweet spot of the, of the implementation. Like if you think of the many of like the core audiences of Linux these days, we're talking about you know tablets and stuff earlier and mobile devices. If you if you think about you know who is using a Linux desktop these days, you typically have like you know developers, techies, sysadmins, guys who generally fall into one of two camps either sort of the lightweight guys who just want the most simple window manager or whatever that can you know just does the thing that it's meant to do and you know probably some old school stuff that no one's seen for 10 years or seen an upgrade <laughs> for for 10 years and then you have another lot who just want something that keeps out of their way and i think most of the gtk ones generally do that in a very elegant way mm-hmm. the K- kde appeals to you know these control freaks who want all these options and all these buttons and everything. But does that necessarily overlap with like the most of the core Linux users these days? I'm, I'm not so sure. And uh, I actually want to give a chance for Daredevil to jump here because Daredevil, you say too, maybe it's, it's the money. Uh, the, there's more money behind GTK. What do you mean there? I mean that there is just as much money being poured. Like, Qt has the support of the corporation DJ, right? And um, GTK has just supported Red Hat. That's not a small feat. That's not a small amount of engineering in there. And when you look at uh, that money being poured into, hey, um, this, if you're going to make an application um, that is going to work in, in your company and you're already using those Red Hats uh, or this Fedora, you know, it's just that they document in a way, and there's also the cycles. So, 
in the end, you, you should just remember that there's also still the very first reason why GTK was created is, you know, there was the doubts about the licensing. Now there's no longer many doubts about licensing, but there is still right, yeah, yeah. an attempt to, you know, show a different path to a different license on yeah. Qt, which yeah. is not necessarily the GTK camp. Yeah, that's good. that's a good point. Richard, and, and also, it's okay. not just Red Hat that, uh, you know, have money behind and you know gtk you know susan linux enterprise also standardized on gnome with the last release well that is a perfect segue to my next question question richard uh so this is semi-awkward here now all of a sudden because um everybody kind of thinks of open as primarily as focusing on the kde plasma desktop but your enterprise distribution is focused on the gnome desktop uh, you kind of talked about this a little bit is is this requiring susa open to pivot more towards user demand or or it, do you play the role as a desktop advocate here and try to get more people to try the Plasma desktop? What what decision does OpenSUSE make in light of the reality of GTK's market predominance and apparent user preference in some cases? Well, first, I guess it's clear to say, like, SUSE's business decision regarding their enterprise distribution is, like, totally separate from OpenSUSE. Like, in, in the sense of, like, SUSE made this decision about GNOME as a default quite a while ago. They did it for 11 mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the OpenSUSE community had a discussion, made their decision, went and stuck with KDE. And, and you know, we're, OpenSUSE is always free to go its own road, do, you know, make its own decisions, and we have an absolutely awesome KDE team. I mean, to be blunt, the best KDE team out there <laughs> doing a wonderful job of packaging all of this stuff, despite the stuff that I've been complaining about. <laughs> yeah, and, right. uh, yeah, and you know, it, it's if you want a KDE experience, it's the best one on there. Where that comes to, like, what does OpenSUSE do in the future? We, I, at time's coming that we'll probably end up having a discussion about this soon, and uh, I think there's, there's some really interesting options to put on the table. Like in the case of Tumbleweed, because one of the things with the community with OpenSUSE is we're not the perception that we are KDE first has always been wrong. We've always treated every desktop equally. So do we put KDE on there? Uh, do we put no desktop as a default in Tumbleweed, for example? In the case of Tumbleweed, we might be able to get away with that. It might make sense. It reflects the community as we are. But for Leap, they're probably not. Hmm. What makes the difference there? Just the target audience of Leap of you know being a, a an easier, not rolling, less techy, user friendly distribution. I see. I mean, we could maybe put no default there. That that's another thing that I kind of stumbled on when I was writing all this stuff to KDE. It's like there's a lot of distros out there that don't have a default. Um, you know, we thought we were crazy thinking about it. Maybe it's an idea to go for that. Yeah, I guess so. I I think you know the the idea of the default desktop. I mean, doesn't it feel like that idea comes from we are going to put all of our focus on this. We're going to do our theming, our customization, all of our effort goes into this, which is really kind of a commercial company way of thinking because it's really a we only have 10 developers to do this, so we must put all of our energy into this desktop. In reality, though, in open source, you may have multiple contributors that want to work on multiple desktops, and so you can ship multiple desktops. Is that true, or is there an advantage to just focusing on one desktop, which I think is where that kind of mentality comes from? I think if you ask other projects, you'll, be, you'll say focus is the way to go. In the case of OpenSUSE, we've been doing this now for 10 years of the, the traditional every developer you know as long as we have contributors we will do it and we'll find a way to do it and if we have two sets of contributors pulling in two different directions we find a way of doing it together and that's like one of the things that we're 
exceptionally good at doing these days. So for us, that's fine. But then you do have to think about the user experience of like, okay, some guy puts in your DVD, boots it up. Do you really want to shove a desktop selection window right in front of them when they have no idea what all those options mean? So uh, this sort of moving on from this, I, I guess I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you just as a follow-up to last week's uh, – I think it was 138 we talked about this. Um, what do you think would be the major breakthrough to make, to make the floodgates open for people to move, say, from the Ubuntu desktop or the Fedora desktop or whatever – and say, you know what, this time this time I install this machine, I'm doing OpenSUSE. And I uh, last week, I think I made it into the show, I'm not sure if it made it in the final version, I proposed that the thing that might finally break those floodgates open is universal application installs across Linux. Because if all of a sudden software availability was sort of the same across all of the major distributions, then you could start picking your distro on other things like technical merits. And you might see a lot more pe- people picking OpenSUSE. It seems like right now one of the barriers is software availability, despite all of the nice tricks and, and means right, you guys – have gone a long way, but Despite still. that, it seems like that might still be the thing that holds up a lot of people. Uh, but I don't know, Richard, what your thoughts are as far as if there could be a big shift that would all of a sudden make it much easier, less friction for people to start jumping to SUSE. Yeah, I, I think I think that's part of it. I mean, we've been thinking about the software availability thing from sort of the other direction of t- uh, tidying up some of the rough edges around like software.opensuse.org and the OBS and, and bits and pieces like that. The the universal application stuff is is interesting. I'm perennially worried about the baggage it might bring. You know, mm-hmm. libraries that need patching and need mm-hmm. maintaining and all yes. the other stuff. I, I mean, I, we're, mm-hmm. we we. We've got some expertise in that area because we've been playing around with like Docker. We have Zipper is the only package manager that can patch inside a Docker container, for example. Hmm. Wow, kind of fun. Um, so you know, maybe we end up to, you know patching inside application containers too and having fun with that. But um, so yeah, I think it's it's part of the story. But I, I think I, in the case of OpenSUSE, the the main part has actually been sort of actually having a, like a consistent story. The same thing that I've been criticizing KDE about. <laughs> You know, I know that's been a weakness for OpenSUSE in the past, and I, I think we're we're finding our feet with that, getting that message out. It's just a case of taking time, listening to feedback, iterating, tuning. One last question, and then I'm, I'm going to I'll I'll toss to Daredevil, and I think we're I'm and, and anything you want to bring up. But my the uh, last week, the thing that really got my head spinning was Microsoft's announcement of Bash on Windows, and uh, to Mr. Popey's delight, uh, they specifically said you can run Ubuntu apps on Windows. In fact, I think when you run the user land now, in the command prompt, when you type bash, up in the little window, it says Ubuntu, as, as if the application you're running is Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is now an application in your, in your task, task bar, Ubuntu, with a little Ubuntu logo, and on Windows. And I'm wondering, when you, when you heard this announcement, did you think to yourself, ah, oh, shit, I wish they would have just said the Linux command line. Why did it have to be Ubuntu? Actually, I heard the announcement, logged onto this Mumble channel, and asked Popey a few questions about the technical <laughs> stuff, because I reckon we can possibly dump open SUSE on top of that instead. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to hear people yeah, try totally. this stuff, because they call the subsystem the Linux subsystem. They don't call it the Ubuntu subsystem. The user land is Ubuntu. But uh, Popey, now, last week in the show, we were covering the rumors that there might be Bash on Windows. Did you know at that time what was coming? I didn't. I knew, like, about an hour before... They went on stage and said it, and that was it. Uh huh. See, we gotta, we gotta get a, we gotta get a line to Dustin, and we gotta get somebody uh, 
giving him beer to give us the uh, inside scoop. Uh, Daredevil, before we move on from uh, Mr. Brown, I, I wanted to get your uh, your question in. So, no, I was just saying, the, the Universal Apps, won't, don't you guys think that it will change what uh, what they mean or what it means when you now have to consider Windows platform? I mean, isn't that the appeal? You mean you mean that particular in that that compatibility layer now? Yeah, I mean seriously. Wow. You make an, an application huh. for Ubuntu, and now it just works on Solaris, BSD, Linux, your, your regular distro, and it will work on Windows. Uh, yeah. I guess Windows can just run CLI apps; they yeah. can't run <laughs> graphical right. apps yet. No, but you know someone's going to get X working on that thing. You know somebody's going to get it. Well, X Ming is already a thing. Oh well, I know. I would hope so. I wonder if somebody will take like somehow if somebody will com- will merge Sigwin with this somehow and make like just some sort of Frankenstein setup, an unholy Linux monster. Right, you know exactly what I'm thinking about. Uh, Richard, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh, move along? No, that's all fine. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, I thought that was a great post, well written, um, and it was it was really uh, well stated too. And uh, I hope the uh, KDE project takes up some of your suggestions. Uh, and we uh, we will just have to wait and see. I will mention DigitalOcean sponsor right here of the Linux Unplugged program. Hey, oh Wes, do you have any DigitalOcean droplets? Oh, you know I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. You know, I have uh, OwnCloud running up on DigitalOcean right now. I got the I got the version nine running. You know, the version nine. They got a one click deployment now of OwnCloud nine. One click. That's de- fast. Boom, boom. That's easy. I tell you what, DigitalOcean is great. It's a great way for you to get your own Linux rig up in the cloud. They call it the cloud. But really, it's what they magical mean? Magical place. Well, it could be magical, but really, what they you know what it is? It's DigitalOcean's magical servers. They have uh, they have data centers all over the world, totally spec'd out. They have them in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany. Uh, they have a new one in India. Forty gigabit e connections to the hypervisors. What? All SSDs. Super fast CPUs, Linux on the entire infrastructure, KVM for the virtualizer, and then all sitting on top of it is this incredible web app. And it is so well designed, but yet extremely powerful. And then, to top it all off, like sprinkles on top of a cupcake for Wes's birthday, an API that is straightforward and easy to it use. It is so easy. With lots of great open source code already written, taken advantage of that API. I love their interface, and I love this. If you use our promo code DOUnplugged, you get a $10 credit. $10 credit over at DigitalOcean to save yourself when you're trying it out. I have DigitalOcean also running an EMR application. Well, I think it's called Open EMR, actually. Like, the name is not all that creative. Uh, But uh, my lady runs a medical practice. And Noah set up one for her a while back, and she oh, tried it out awesome. for a little while. And he did the same thing. He spun up a DigitalOcean droplet. But that's the first thing you do. She wasn't really ready to try it then. He was being a little pushy. You know how yeah. Noah can be. Yeah. You know how – I mean I'm just saying. Noah's a good guy, but he can be intense. So she's like, I'm that's not quite ready. That's how he's going to win this challenge. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I uh, says, so I'm not quite ready, she thought. You know, but now, now she's ready to jump in. It just takes seconds. I'm a busy guy, Wes, and the fact that I can manage my DigitalOcean droplets, it melts my freaking face. It is so great. And when you use a promo code DO Unplugged, you can try it out. Their pricing is very straightforward. You can even just do hourly pricing. You can go get a big rig. Here's a fun one. I would, I would totally suggest you use DigitalOcean to set up a Mumble server. If you have not played with Mumble for yourself, it is a great open source voice chat program. It's Invite what, your friends. Just chat. Or your own virtual lug. It's what we do for our virtual lug. Our virtual lug uses Mumble running on a DigitalOcean droplet. 
and it works great. People connect from all over the world to that DigitalOcean droplet, and it runs all the time. DigitalOcean.com, use their HTML5 console to manage your bots, their API, or their fantastic interface. They got Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora, CentOS, CoreOS, and even that free BSD. They already have tutorials popping up on their site, too, for 1604. They're on top of it. DigitalOcean.com. Just use that promo code DO, unplugged, one word, lowercase. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Uh, and many, many of our friends out there in the open source world are also taking advantage of DigitalOcean either as like DigitalOcean sponsoring them by providing the server hosting uh, or they're just already choosing to run off them. In fact, I recall, I think uh, I think Wimpy uses uh, DigitalOcean for some Ubuntu Mate oh. stuff. And speaking of Ubuntu Mate, it is a new month. And so we look back at the month of March and we see that the Ubuntu Mate project has had yet, once again, another good month. And uh, Wimpy has outlined how he'll be spending the uh, monies, or how the monies were spent, I guess, better put. And uh, I wanted to just let him jump in. Is there anything from the update you wanted to share with the audience, Wimpy? Um, well, those people that are following the blog, they can see all of that stuff in there, see where the money's going. We've put some aside because um, we've got the... Uh, 1604, a couple of weeks away, and we'll be releasing the Raspberry Pi images for that. We anticipate a spike in downloads, and that gets expensive. So we're uh, we put some money aside to cater for those downloads. You know, I think I I've been thinking about what it is about these updates that I like. I mean, I like knowing, but it's not just that. What I like is, uh, I assume it's true, but whether it's true or not, you give the impression of a financially stable and financially sustainable distribution. Exactly. Um, and as somebody who's been watching distributions come and go for a long time, I, it makes me feel good about that distribution, that you have a sustainable path here. But I wanted to kind of – I actually wanted to push you a little bit on two of the uh, line items you have here because I don't know what these mean and they sound really interesting. So Luke uh, got, uh, got some cash for working on Ubuntu Mate Welcome. That's very generic – Wimpy, because Ubuntu Mate Welcome has been a project you've been working on for a long time. What did you want to share any specifics? Because I was curious. I would like to know what did he do. Uh, well, he's effectively the principal developer for Ubuntu Mate Welcome and the software boutique now. So oh, okay. It's it's really uh, Luke falls into the category of people that um, really doesn't isn't interested in the money, doesn't want the money. And this is just a way of me saying thank you for the hours and hours of yeah. effort that he's put into the project, you know. And also, you know, he's the forum administrator in the community. So he's he's taken on a lot of responsibility. And it's just nice to say thank you for all the time and effort well, he's I would, invested into the project. I would say, Luke, you have helped create one of the best software centers or deployment tools for Linux that I have ever used. Absolutely. I think it's fair to say that he hasn't helped. This is Luke's imagining. So I started the ball rolling in 1510. And Luke's involvement's kind of interesting because very, very early on when Welcome was really, really fresh and new early in the 1510 cycle, he posted a mock-up in the forum of the rolling in logo animation that you see in the 1510 right. Ubuntu Mate Welcome. And I said, ooh, that would be so great if you implement 
that and the next day there was a pull request and he'd implemented it all and the rest of it and that kind of sparked his involvement and then I didn't hear much from him and then as the 1604 cycle started I got this colossal pull request (laughs) and he clearly spent weeks you know working on it and it was just this bam this is what I've been doing for the last I don't know how long. And it was just like, okay. And then all of a sudden, I, you're like, wow, we've got something for 1604 here that's great. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Great. And so, and, and he was very clear, you know, he, he, he got what Welcome was all about. He, he totally understood why it was important and he really wanted to go for it. So um, I kind of stepped back a little bit from active development. I've had a hand in it, but he has really driven. Ubuntu Mate Welcome and the Software Boutique in 1604 with the help of uh, Robin Thompson as well, who uh, I approached Mm. to help us with the translation work that we've been working on the last six weeks or so. So also, uh, I noticed that uh, it looks like there's been some continued effort to porting uh, Mate Desktop to GTK3. Yep, yep. So um, the upstream guys, uh, Wolfgang and Vlad, uh, and another guy called Luke, who I don't have any active contact with, but Luke from DC, I think you go by on GitHub, you really need to get in touch with me. I need to reach out and say thank you to you for all of your hard work as well. Um, but yeah, the the three of them have been working tirelessly for months and months to really refine the GTK3 implementation. And I think the target at the moment, more or less, is that uh, Mate Desktop 1.14 will be released in about a week's time, and it should be the first one that has a stable GTK3 implementation for those people that want to build against GTK3. Hmm. That is exciting. So impressive. GTK 3.20 is the uh, version that they're targeted, and so they've worked really, really hard on that. So, do you want to chat a little bit about uh, some Raspberry Pi stuff? Uh, I know that you've been working on several different things in that regard. I don't know how much you want to talk about what you want to share, but there's several things that are, would be pretty interesting to the audience. Yeah, yeah, that's my <laughs> sort of favorite favorite pet project. I like tinkering with the Raspberry Pi. I have lots of friends with Raspberry Pi. Interests. We like you tinkering with Absolutely. the Raspberry Pi. <laughs> yeah, it's lots of fun. So, um, yeah, I, I alluded to the fact there'll be um, a Raspberry Pi uh, release for 16.04 for Ubuntu Mate. And I will also build uh, the same versions that we've had before. So uh, I've made uh, versions of the Ubuntu, you know, traditional Ubuntu server, um, and also Lubuntu and Zubuntu images for those people that want to play with those. And I think oh, a couple of months ago we were talking about this stuff and I alluded to the fact that, you know, there was some experimental work going on from the Raspberry Pi Foundation with um, accelerated drivers mm-hmm. for the video core for chip and that, you know, if that went well, then we could potentially start seeing some of the composited desktops running on the Raspberry Pi 3. Right. Oh, so nice. I've spent a couple of evenings playing with that and having some fun with that. Yeah. And how has that gone, Wimpy? Well, I've got to the point <laughs> where... <laughs> so uh, at the moment, I, I can boot and run, in air quotes, uh, Ubuntu Unity, Kubuntu and ubuntu gnome 
1604 on the Raspberry Pi 3. Wow! That's awesome. Oh, boy. That. Oh, boy. The Raspberry Pi 3 is getting awfully appealing all of a sudden. Ooh, you can ooh, do a ooh. lot with one of those. <laughs> hmm. Now, it's, it's progress because in 1510, that just wasn't possible. And the Video Core 4 drivers are still very experimental. So none of those desktops are what you would call usable. Okay. They're kind of interesting, <laughs> uh, you know, little moose-bouche. And, and I'm sure it will improve. So over the course of the... You know, have have you, know, you four, seen my Plasma desktop? It literally is glitching out all <laughs> over the place right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so actually, the, the, K, the Kubuntu mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't really... I'm not really familiar with it. The issue there, and this isn't a, a KDE issue it's you know it's the uh video call for drivers you know that there is some right. rough edges there right so some of the renderings not right so right. some of the icons and some of the fonts are a bit um you can't make them out but when i can get it to do stuff the animations are just silky smooth just perfect <sighs> nice. it, you you can't complain um on ubuntu unity that generally works um Although when I tried to take a screenshot of the desktop, that locked something up. So that's why I had to take a photograph of <laughs> of that one running rather than a <laughs> screenshot. Um, but, you know, that broadly works. Um, Kubuntu works, but I can't make it out where Ubuntu uh, has better, you know, it doesn't have the rendering glitches. Um, it has some other issues. And then Ubuntu GNOME looks perfect. Mm. It absolutely looks perfect. Mm. There is no rendering issues whatsoever. But as soon as you launch any application, the whole thing dies on its ass, and it only works, in, <laughs> only works in classic mode. Oh, okay. So you know these these drivers are evolving. So they'll get there in 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 due course. But it, it kind of wet my appetite. So I've I've now started experimenting with some of the other acceleration. Uh, facilities that are available on the Raspberry Pi 2 and well in fact all the Raspberry Pis but obviously I'm targeting the the 2 and the Mm 3 because of the Ubuntu base supporting that architecture and uh, as I'm now working on uh, video playback acceleration and that's a much happier story now this could be huge because uh, a lot of people that I've heard in the audience that have tried the Pi for a media center have said, it is great. It is great when you're watching SD content or 720p content, but you get up to around 1080p and it starts to be a different story. And it has made the pie sort of unattractive to me as a Cody box. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, even as a production box, because if I can't get 1080p playback, then I can't capture it 1080. And that's no good because right. that's what we capture at here locally. Um, and so it's sort of eliminated as a possibility as even something I could have uh, as an extra studio computer. Yeah, and, and the other issue is is that if you have a dedicated um, media center application such as um, Kodi running on something like OpenELEC, it works very well. Mm. Um, and I agree, on the older models of the Raspberry Pi, um you could comfortably do 720p, yeah. and depending on the bit rate, it would do 1080p. Yeah, I've never tried it on the three though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is what I've been playing with just recently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's looking really good. So Ooh. there's a guy in the Ubuntu Mate community called 
Arawan, who posted a load of tips and tricks on how to compile various things with acceleration for the Raspberry Pi 3. So I've been going through his stuff and sort of piecing it together and filling in the blanks. And what I've got going at the moment is I have um, a VLC fully accelerated yes. uh, for the Raspberry Pi 2 and the Raspberry Pi 3. That's yes. Huge. And oh, that's properly great. So that's using the OpenMax API, which is the same API that things like Kodi on the Raspberry Pi mm. use and the OMX Player use. Okay. So although you've got the user interface for VLC, you launch the, um, you know, pick your media player and set it playing, and it immediately goes full screen, and you just use the keyboard bindings to then control the playback. But it is absolutely super slick, and it is—it's super smooth, and it works perfectly. Man, that's going to have big—that could have a big impact for people that are using the Raspberry Pi in a battery situation, which I—I uh, yep. could—I could see a lot of people doing. Yeah, I mean, I've got one of these um, Atrix laptops, and right. know, running on that, it, yes. it's like a portable media player yep. now. It looks fantastic. It's got an HDMI screen, HDMI audio can run it off a battery it's got a built-in battery that can power the pi it runs for about wow. 10 hours it's just fantastic yeah producer q5 sys has one of those atrix docs and i borrowed it for like ever from him i think i think i gave it back to him now mm. uh and it is ideal it is ideal for the raspberry pi if you could have just a way to uh, to attach it um and i could you know for me I, I, uh, something I could I could easily connect to like different TVs in the home right. or in the office that th- th- would then have fully exer- accelerated playback. That is a that is a big deal. Now, is it just in VLC Wimpy or is it a- other applications as well? Yes, I've started to branch out into other stuff. So the thing about VLC is that in the past we've only been able to offer OMX Player, which is a command line utility. So there's a barrier to entry there. So now having VLC, you can you know right click on things, launch in VLC, and it will just start playing, or you can do it through the VLC UI. But um, uh, this evening I've got um, a build of FFmpeg which is fully accelerated for the... There we um, go. Raspberry yeah, yeah. No. No. Yeah. This is neat. And that uses a different uh, API. This uses the uh, ML, which is the multimedia abstraction layer for the video core chip. And uh, so you can use FF Play, for example, to from right. the command line to yeah. launch your content. And that's windowed. So you can do it in full screen or you can have it in windowed. And, yeah. and that all is fully accelerated. And I will confirm. I've even seen a screenshot that actually confirms it is actually real, which is. Yeah. 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 yeah <laughs> screen, screenshots or it didn't happen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so the next step is uh, I should be able to compile MPV and link it against that version of FFmpeg yeah. to give a fully accelerated MPV. Now, would you ship um, that in 16.04? I don't know if I'll install these things by default. Well, FFmpeg will be included by default. <sighs> Definitely yes. VLC will. Uh, MPV will be... So uh, the way that the build works is that there's a PPA stacked on top. So uh, if you installed MPV on one of those Ubuntu flavors built with the Ubuntu Pi Flavor Maker, you would get the accelerated version of MPV. And... I'm I th- I'm fairly confident I can get MPV working, and then the final step is to then build an accelerated version of Kodi. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice! Yes, Heck which yes. of course loads of distributions oh, yeah. have as you know a a dedicated you know Kodi box. Uh, 
my idea is just to build Kodi in the desktop you know version so you can run it window uh, well maybe window maybe full screen i'm, I'm not quite right. sure which which api to use yet but the idea is is to have Kodi as an install option that's fully accelerated that would be splendid this because everyone wants that but you that's, are that's a tool tool order so i'll see how i go <laughs> if you get this if you pull this off and i know you know everything is subject to change of but course. if you pull this off uh, you what you are going to do is you are going to apply bacon grease to the already incredible momentum that Ubuntu Mate has for the Raspberry platform, <laughs> Raspberry Pi platform. Uh, if this, if these having, if if I knew, if if I knew that there was a distro out there that I just downloaded and FFmpeg was already patched to be hardware accelerated on the Raspberry Pi, Done. that would always be the distribution I download. That would that you seal yep. the deal right there. You, it's already, it's it becomes it becomes the premier the Ubuntu the, the Mate desktop, which is obvious on a Raspberry Pi three. That's obvious. Combined with hardware accelerated FFmpeg or maybe even VLC and 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 heavens be perhaps Cody. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> This would be an un, this would be an an obvious pr- premier distribution for the Raspberry Pi, and turns out there's a lot of Raspberry Pis out there. Is this your yeah. goal, or are you just? <laughs> I mean, I, this seems like almost like evil mastermind level uh, uh, planning. No, no, this is this is answering what, what the community has asked for. So, uh, the first goal was to make Ubuntu Mate um, as useful to the makers as raspbian is so i've got lots of friends who make stuff with the raspberry pi and you know they've got this is all alien to me they've got breadboards and they've got widgets and wires and things and they glue it all together and they make stuff work one of my friends albert made a mind mind controlled game with the raspberry pi imagine that so a headband you put on your head and you think like flappy birds you think up down and it responds to your thoughts to play the game so you know epic epic levels of maker so combine that with vr and you got my attention yeah so when when i ask albert you know does this work I've got to the point where Albert is satisfied that all of the stuff he needs to do and, and Isaac as well, all of these guys are from the Pi podcast. They're the presenters on the Pi podcast. They're like the unofficial official Ubuntu Mate test team. Nice. So when they tell me stuff works, I'm fairly confident it works. So I've, I've kind of got all of that GPIO maker level stuff working really well now. And the next thing that everyone is asking for is they want Kodi, they want VLC, and they want it accelerated. So that's what we're trying to do. Hmm. Definitely, we've got VLC done. That's in the bag. We've definitely got FFmpeg. That's in the bag. Um, and FFmpeg is there because we use that with the YouTube downloader, which is built, right. got the GUI built in. <laughs> and and next is to try and ace cody and i make no promises about that because i have tried several times in the past and flat out failed so <laughs> we'll see how we go hey at least you're trying i guess well that is uh, that is quite the update uh, that is that is really great i boy i'm excited about that um you know i i am uh, so i've been for for weeks now i've been using uh, plasma desktop on ubuntu um <clears throat> And for the last two, I've been using it on 16.04. And uh, now I'm switching over to Unity. I'm going to be running on Unity until uh, until Final comes out. Oh, snap. But I wouldn't be surprised if the one I end up on is the Ubuntu Mate 16.04 on the Apollo. Well, that just makes sense. And then when I run it on my Raspberry Pi 3, same exact setup. I love it, Wimpy. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah. <sighs> thank yeah. you. That's So, yeah, thank you to everyone who contributed to the project in the last month. It was really great. So we shifted 55 terabytes of downloads of Raspberry Pi images in March. What are you so, using to distribute 55? What did you say? 55 terabytes yeah. just for the Raspberry Pi. <laughs> what are you using to do that? Just for the Raspberry uh, Pi. We've got um, three servers, and two of them are responsible for, for shifting that data. Holy smokes. One in, one in Canada and one in France. You should maybe talk to Alan because uh, you need to move yeah, some data. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes. Uh, as somebody who moves many terabytes of data a month, too, um, <clears throat> there are not many independent shops that are able to move that much data. I am extremely impressed. Yeah. I thought I was one of the only that got away with that. So that is... That's, Unbelievable. that's the easy bit because, you know, doing large-scale server stuff, that's my day job. I can do that all day long, accelerating video playback and, you know, plugging things into GPIO ports. Not not so hot at that. That, that takes a bit more time. <laughs> yeah, but you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Slowly, uh, baby steps. Yeah. I, oh, uh-huh. shoot. I was just trying to look. Uh, it, it's no longer hmm, – it doesn't seem that Alan no longer – he doesn't put it in there anymore. Alan used to put the total terabyte of transfer in the invoice, but I don't see it. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty significant amount of terabytes per month, and so that's that's impressive, Wimpy. Just for the Raspberry Pi too. That's, woo, yikes! All right, well, uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to take a minute and tell you about my mobile service provider, Ting. You know, I'm going on a road trip, Wes. Road trip. Road trip. Everybody, go to Linux.Ting.com real quick, won't you? I'm going on a road trip. So you know what I'm going to do before I go on my road trip? You know what I do? This is legit. I log into my Ting dashboard. And I go turn on my MiFi line. Boop. And then I have a MiFi. Yeah. It's oh, easy. Wow. And then when I'm, when I'm back from the road trip, you know what I do? I log into the Ding dashboard. I turn off my boop. MiFi. Boop. That's, that was a, your boop was better than my oh, boop. thank you. That was a really good. That was your, is that your first boop? I think so. That was solid. Linux.ting.com. Go there and save $25 off your first device. Now. Why Ting? Well, that is easy. No contract, no early termination fee, and ladies and gentlemen, you only pay for what you use. Six dollars for the line. So I got I when when I activate, so do your boop boop. No, oh come on, that was boop. When I activate the <laughs> MiFi, that's six dollars a month, and then my usage on top of that, and then when I deactivate the MiFi, boop. <clears throat> no, no, wow, you peaked, dude. You boot peaked. Uh, when, when I, sure I did. When I deactivate the MiFi, then I don't pay for it at all. This is really nice. So I generally have about three active devices. So I'm paying $6 a month for each line. And then my usage on top of that, minutes, messages, and megabytes. Well, guess what? We've got Wi-Fi right here at the Jupiter Broadcasting Studios. And guess what? I've got Wi-Fi at home. And I've got Wi-Fi when I go to Angela's house. I've got Wi-Fi when I go see my dentist even. My dentist has Wi-Fi, dude. Dude, my dentist. um, (laughs) There is a grocery store up in the city that I live in that has Wi-Fi. The LaConnor grocery store has Wi-Fi. Wow. Yeah. I tell you have Wi-Fi everywhere. Well, no. No, I don't. And that's why I have Ting. Because when I'm not on Wi-Fi, I can choose between GSM or CDMA networks. Yeah, I look at my cellular data sort of like my backup data when I need it. And I primarily and that I, because of that and and Rikai he's Rikai he's like he, the beard is like a ninja dude it like it like soaks up Wi-Fi signals it's like a booster so <laughs> between between us with three lines we're doing like thirty seven bucks this month for our Ting line it's ridiculous uh, and then you combine it with that dashboard Ting is an unbelievable deal and 
great customer service. They got like these fanatical customer support reps that are going to talk you. They're going to work with you. They'll stay on the line. They'll talk to you until the until it's completely resolved. My first road trip I went on. I had like a little uh, SIM SMID mix up or whatever. I don't even remember anymore because it was a while ago. But when I was going over to Noah's house for the uh, right. uh, when he for the uh, for the, uh, the for the tour of his house with all the tech he had in there, I my my first day on the road or a couple days into it, I had to like uh, troubleshoot some sort of SIM issue. I don't even remember what it was now. And uh, there was legitimately a point forty five minutes into the call where I thought they were like going to like, well, Mister Fisher, thank you for you know blah blah. And I was like, because. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, I was like, look, you've done everything you can. I've done everything I can. I understand at some point in time you got to move on, and this is totally cool. And, dude, I kid you not, they stuck with me for another 25 minutes, and uh, they, went, they, went, they went above and beyond. Uh, and they really – the problem got resolved, and I was back online, wow. good to go. I mean, it was like – and when they – and like, I think at one point like they had to call someone, and they, they put me on hold and, and then let me listen in on their call to them, and I could hear them like telling them what, what was up. And no it way. was – yeah. They were really cool. Uh, and, and then later on, they sent me a postcard. A postcard. A postcard. That was pretty cool. Uh, so And they do that they, – they, I guess they do that from time to time. Go check them out. Go over there. Look at all the great devices they have. They also on their blog just recently put up a post. I love long reviews. A long review is the best kind of review. Not these reviews where they get them five days before the device is out for the public. Uh, but these reviews, my month with the Moto X Pure Edition. That just went up on the Ting blog. Go check them out, linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program, linux.ting.com. Thanks, you guys, for going there and supporting the show by checking them out. So, Mr. Wes, I, I am surprised. Almost every week, it seems, at least for the last few weeks, we have found a reason for you to have to format your hard drive and try out yet another off-the-wall Linux distribution. Long-serving hard drive. Yeah, and this week is no different. We're going to call it, I think, um, Apricity. Apricity OS. Apricity OS. Uh, and it is Arch-based uh, and a GNOME-based desktop. Or, or Cinnamon. Thank you. And uh, it uses the power – oh, geez, it's going so fast I can't even read it. The PowerLine shell. Uh, and it's a modern intuitive operating system with the cloud integration designed for the cloud generation. And by that, they mean it – it ships with a lot of interesting defaults, uh, one of them being push bullet, so your uh, Android notifications are synced between you and your device. Hey, that's handy. That is that is kind of handy. Uh, you know, there's other there's other actually kind of rather nice things like they ship it with Play on Linux included by default. In fact, it's it's rather stacked all together. All things uh, it ships with a TLP for. Uh, Battery management installed sure by default. Does. Sync thing is installed by default. I've got it. I'm already syncing with my really with my droplet. Yep. Google Chrome is installed by default, not Chromium. Um, it also has uh, um, well a rather design heavy desktop. I have it running here in a virtual machine. Wes has it there running on a desktop. So if you're watching the video version, I'm going to pull it up here so you guys can just kind of see here. Let me log in with my super secure. Uh, I have like a demo review password that I use. It's of funny. Course. <clears throat> so password. I'll zoom out a little bit. I apologize here. You know what? I will remote in and uh, I will I'll turn off the lower third just for a second so you guys can see the whole uh, you can see the whole desktop there. So there you can see I have it running in boxes under my KDE desktop. Uh, here, I'll go full screen. Why not? What could go wrong? And it kind of reminds me almost immediately of Elementary OS because it has a dock along the bottom. It has the transparent top. Pretty with, clean. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you think, Wes? So as, as somebody who doesn't uh, – your daily driver doesn't run Arch, but you've probably ran Arch on many occasions. 
everything We're, else in my life mostly does. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's nice. I'm I'm enjoying it. I've kind of already got everything replaced. I'm, you know, doing the show from it. I've got IRC back up. Uh, it was very easy to get installed and, and going. And since it's Arch, uh, you know, you can just one tick enable the AOR in their little yeah. add or remove software. Or I can have Pac-Man on the command line like <clears> I'm always <throat> used to. Now, um, you and I both thought the installer was pretty nice, pretty clean. Did you recognize that as an installer from anything else? Not. I didn't either. I didn't recognize it. Now, it, it, it felt so well done that it must have – it felt like it must be a fork of – and the only reason I'm saying this is because it usually takes a couple of years for an installer to be pretty well flushed it out. It seemed to be one of those areas, yeah. Yeah. And uh, this seemed like a pretty spot-on good installer and it handled – uh, my partitioning just fine. It, the only thing it didn't do that you know I've come to expect from a modern day installer is it didn't pr- appropriately detect my time zone. Oh yeah, but, um, yeah, it didn't didn't for me either. But yeah, but I mean, let me set it. I mean, that would part was yeah, fine. exactly, super easy, not a big deal. But I mean, that's just like one the grub screen was really nice, yeah, polished. It, it found my other install. So did your well, I, now because I'm running a VM, I might not, I might not be getting the same experience as you did. But it, for mine, my grub screen kind of. In fact, I could reboot right now and just show the audience. Uh, my grub screen kind of looks like the GNOME three login screen. Like it's that same color and that tech, yeah, that great no, texture. That would all right. Yeah. So it, right there. there so it kind of – and then when it boots up, that's the same color and the same general look you're going to get your login screen. Now, I don't get – I just get a text boot here. Do you get any kind of uh, graphical like uh, Plymouth-type boot? Uh, in? You know, I'm not sure. You haven't rebooted yet? <laughs> well, I did once, but not, yeah, nonsense then. Yeah, OK. That's I'll fine. I'll check on that. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, um, a Pricity, I guess. It's kind of a new distro uh, based on Arch. It does have its own repos. I haven't really dug into that too much. I probably should because that's always kind of the Achilles heel of these kinds of things. But these, this is an interesting trend where you have these super designed distributions. And I think that was kind of what I found to be interesting about this. So you got Solus, right? You got Elementary OS. Those are kind of two that jump to mind. But there's many others that are very design heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and X-Metal says that it reminds him of an, a mix between Elementary and Antigros, which I could see that too because it's similar to the Arc theme, which reminds me a bit of the Bungie desktop. And it's similar to Antigros because it's um, Arch-based. Yes, yeah, and what, they're using – yeah, it looks like they're using – Wes, do you remember the name of the shell that they have here? They have uh, Powerline. Yeah, okay. So they have Powerline installed by default, which is interesting because that's kind of a, a, a jazzed up uh, bash shell there, and it's um, it, it makes it is. It, I mean, yeah, I don't know if you're watching the video version, but it makes it look a little nicer than normal. And um, <clears throat> so if I if I go into downloads here, oh look at that, that's cute. Uh, you see how the uh, my path is in the uh, yeah, isn't that it's kind of yep. neat. It's very clean. It's very easy to read. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's just something. There's a lot of little things like this that they've done by by default that make it a very – I mean, actually make it a very attractive desktop. They have, like, Telegram right in their own repo as a binary. So we got that installed. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know what else they have already. Now, I guess the, I can just get that from the AUR, you though. You can. Yeah. They also have a, a graphical package manager that is is actually kind of yeah, palatable. So, so search Telegram there. You'll see it. I think you'll see them both. Oh, okay. Okay, Telegram. Let's take a look. Hello, Telegram with an E now. Did you know they spell it with an E now? I don't see it in here. No, you're, you're a big, you're um, a liar. Oh, pants. okay. Well, maybe you have to, you might have to enable AUR and... But check this out. Check this out. They're using this GTK3 front end to uh, libalpm, which essentially gives you a graphical package manager for Pac-Man. And it even gives you the ability to install local uh, ALPM packages, which is really kind of an interesting thing oh, wow. for an Arch user. Yeah. 
Uh, so this is a GTK3 interface to the package manager that they ship here. They've got caffeine um, just in, by default up yeah, there. They, yeah, yeah. I bet they have a – you know what? If we launch GNOME Tweak, which they also have in the like, dock right. by, yeah. by default, I bet you we have quite a bit of extensions in here. Wow. Yeah, always Zoom workspaces, <laughs> caffeine, dash to dock, flippery move clock, media player indicator, place of status indicator. Yeah, there's a bunch in here, Wes. But you know what? To be honest with you, these are actually all all of these. In fact, there's even a couple I would add. <laughs> I mean, these are all good. Um, sure, these, sure. These are actually all great. Uh, in fact, I know some of the people that make some of these, and these and they're they're all really dedicated people. So these are all really high quality extensions. Um, so and then again, this is these are all uh, these are really good defaults. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. And one of the other things that they're doing that I find to be interesting is this is a Patreon. Yeah, they've got a Patreon. Going. This is a Patreon fund, and they've only got a few backers right now because it's early. And I imagine this concept too is kind of odd for a lot of people. But uh, I, I don't know. I find it to be really neat. I, I kind of, I'm, if I wasn't in the midst of my like sixteen oh four mega uh, right. deep dive, I would be. You know, I guess to put it another way, when I go back on my arch binge, I might be tempted to go this route. The only thing I'm going to have to spend time is I got to look into. Uh, <clears throat> What would always – and maybe you could check for me if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, how – are those GNOME extensions coming from their repository? Mm. Uh, what what all is coming from their repository? Because when GNOME uh, 3.22 comes out, right. uh, that crap's going to break. And that is always what, what sort of dooms those uh, Arch-based uh, GNOME desktops in the long term is when they pull too much from their own private repository. But like, yeah, so they have, they have that fancy uh, bash terminal installed, which is really nice. They uh, – they also have pre-built several packages like Telegram in their user repository. PlayOn is installed. Steam is pre-installed. Obviously, then Wine, because you have PlayOn, is pre-installed. Um, it's an interesting Arch-based distribution. Has anyone in the mumble room played with this one? I doubt it. It's pretty new. Apricity, I think is how you say it. Apricity OS. They have a Cinnamon edition available as well, which neither one of us gave a shot. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I'm not seeing too much. Here's a list of everything in Impricity Core I've got installed. Okay. Give it to me. Um, they've got like a bunch of themes, their icons, uh, some Broadcom Ath10K drivers, BT Sync, Cower, GNOME Terminal, Google Chrome, Google Talk plugin, that kind of stuff. Uh, Pack AUR. So just kind of their own, their own modifications. Uh, but it's not very much, and it's none of the GNOME stuff. Bitten uh, mentions in the chat room real-time follow-up that that uh, GTK3 GUI for uh, the package managers that I was loving there, that uh, that Pac-Man front-end, is what Manjaro uses. Oh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I, I don't, I'm not sensing a huge interest in this, um, even though I actually think this is kind of a fascinating distribution. I will just wrap with this. Um, they're focusing on web apps in a way that uh, I've be actually recently become a little more uh, hip to myself. I've been using Google Chrome's uh, create create it like what is, what does Google Chrome call it uh, when you go in here you can say um, you know there's a way to isn't there a way to yeah like a way to make this a uh, save uh, add or save page as or add to desktop or something like that add to desktop and it makes it a desktop application right okay add to desktop makes it a de- yeah so they are shipping something called Ice it lets you put your favorite web app on the desktop. A simple SSB, a site-specific browser manager. These specialized browsers are minim- minimize the number of steps between you and wanting to use your favorite web app, they say. Uh, it embodies our vision here at Apricity. We want to help your make your workspace and your play space more productive and elegant. 
Now, as someone who has fallen into using an online markdown editor a lot, not right. always, an online document program, Google Docs, um, an online chat program, uh, IRC Cloud from time to time, or Mattermost or Slack, it starts to make a lot of sense to have these be separate processes that show up as separate icons in my task manager. See, what I'm, what I'm seeing is this seems like a great – it's such an easy thing to slot into. You've got sync thing, right? So, bam, you're syncing with yourself. You've got your key pass. You've got whatever you need. Now you're signed into Chrome. You're signed into your accounts. You make web apps for Slack, for Telegram, and you've got your full desktop experience in like 10 minutes on a fresh install. They also say a fresh install usually idles after everything's up and running around 500 megabytes of usage, which really isn't too bad. They focus on battery usage with TLP installed by default. Uh, push bullet for integration with your Android device to get notifi- notifications, texts, and phone calls across all your devices. Uh, sync thing like uh, West just managed. Also SB Backup, which is uh, kind of a nice backup program that allows you to do both compressed and uncompressed backups and split uncompressed backups into like multiple parts if you want to do it across like thumb drives or something. Uh, you can do scheduled backups and manual backups with it and uh, also backups to remote destinations. And they've built it in uh, right there installed by default. And then, like I earlier mentioned, the Powerline shell, which is the uh, pretty nice terminal prompt. It looks really it looks really classy. They've gone throughout and made sure that, that things are well rendered under high DPI. And I like their defaults. You know, they're using GNOME Photos for your photos, GNOME Music for your music, GNOME Calendar for your calendar. They got Steam installed by default. They got LibreOffice installed by default. And, like, you know, other things like we mentioned. So I, I, it seems like a really cool project that's really thinking about this stuff. Uh, and, you know, Arch-based, which uh, kind of gets my attention down the road, I think. So yep. Apricity, we'll have a link in the show notes, aprisityos.com, if you guys want to check it out. Daredelvin, you had a mention about uh, Chromium Embedded Framework. Go ahead. I don't hear you, Daredelvin. I guess he did have a He did have a he comment. Died. Yeah, he did. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, uh, I think these in, in web apps uh, inclusion into the desktop are a natural evolution of the Chromium embedded framework. I mean, Google did this. Uh, simplify you development. I mean, if you think Atom, Brackets, those editors are using that principle. But I guess it's time that we, before we start just jumping on board on this, start making the question, aren't our browsers already doing quite a lot? And do we really want to be in this completely remote so the application can run somewhere else and no. you just get that face? No, 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 no. But in some cases, yes. Yeah, in some cases, especially for stuff I don't care a lot about, the stuff that's not super important. Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Patreon.com slash Apricity. They have four patrons right now. They're making 30 bucks a month. I doubt that's covering much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I doubt. I doubt so. But that's a it's an interesting try. And so uh, I'm glad you installed it, Wes. Yeah, we'll see. I might just be using it next week as well. Mm. I'm not seeing mm. – I, I mean I can mount my other one if I need it. I'm not seeing mm. a lot of reason to go back. Do you uh, like the performance on the physical hardware? Performance is OK yeah, on the Sputnik there? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean I, it's, I suspended it all the way here. Things are working great. Yeah, yeah. You know, Wes, I think we should take a moment and we should thank Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Now, all of us know that if you really want to get a great job, you're probably going to have to have a few certifications under your belt. Also, it's kind of nice as personal challenges, and it also helps at review time. Linux Academy has had a ton of success in the last few months. Uh, I, I mean, they have had success for a lot longer than that, but they've been publishing it on their blogs in the last few months and really sort of demonstrating 
what a difference people can see when they go to Linux Academy, especially when they're looking to learn something around Linux or AWS. Other learning sites, they don't quite get it right. They don't quite have the passion and the drive to actually care enough to understand the difference between Red Hat, Enterprise Linux, and Fedora, or Debian and Ubuntu. There are differences. You know there are, but they can barely even understand what they are. That's not Linux Academy. Linux Academy is a platform designed by people that are extremely passionate about Linux and wanted to sort of promote it in a way that would get wider adoption for Linux. They came together with educators and professionals and developers and created the Linux Academy platform, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there, support this show, and give yourself a discount. You know, I think also one of the things you might take for granted about Linux Academy, because it it's a website. You probably think it's only useful when you have an internet connection. But if you're going to be offline, like I'm about to be for several days, uh, they have downloadable comprehensive study guides. They have PDFs for reading. Wow. They have audio and video, stuff that you can get while you're offline as well. Uh, listener Seth listens in the shower. He's not bringing his laptop in there. He's got it playing through his speaker system while he's in the shower. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. It is kind of awesome. Uh, and that's a really nice functionality of Linux. They also have, of course, yeah, okay, so they have, so on the other end, they also have live events, and you can ask instructors questions, and they have instructor mentoring and all of that. And they have an active forums. It's packed full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. They have great courseware on Red Hat. I mean, NOAA is all about the Red Hat Enterprise certified like administrator and engineer and he's always – yeah. Well, and the clients love it, man. That's – I mean I don't know how much NOAA is into it. I mean I think he respects Red Hat as a company but it's the clients that that, that really want it. And it's the same when you're trying to get a job. Uh, And so that's why he pursues it. And, you know, he's done a lot of different avenues and Red Hat is – Totally. Is a seriously respected certification, and their courseware at Linux Academy is top notch. Also on the AWS stuff on the front of AWS, I, just when I started getting into like S3 and storing my uh, web assets and like the complicated system that they have for it, and I was like, okay, I've got this. I don't need any courseware on this. Right. I mastered this on my own. Okay, so then I went further, and a client needed a Windows 2003 server. Well, you know what? I'm an AWS expert now. I'll go set this up for you. Yeah, I had um, I had like a couple of weeks of like you know going back and forth with the client, deciding how we were going to do what and what was going to run where, and all me all all in the meanwhile, this brand new server I set up for them was running on AWS, and uh, I didn't. I didn't quite grok the fact that that was like like costing me like this as the CPU runs, it costs me money. Like it, per cycle, it costs money. <laughs> like unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. They're charging me per CPU cycle. Unbelievable. Who even tracks that? Is what I was thinking. <laughs> so I got this bill, and I'm like, uh, yeah, you know that server that we haven't even deployed to production yet. We're already paying for it. Sorry. And I was using that time to learn the system too, kind of you know at the same time. That's what, a podcaster, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. When you go there and you're going through one of their courses or they have a scenario or a live lab, they'll spin up the AWS instance for you and manage Damn. all of that so you don't get stuck with that fine. Uh, they also have Android development courses, PHP, Python, Ruby, the whole DevOps category. Chef is Their chef tutorials are very helpful. Dude, their Linux basics and all of that. And they have like nuggets on uh, IP tables and uh, net tables and fire. End tables, whatever it's called now. And filter. Firewall, all the things. All the things. SSH, 
SSH all the things. Really, they have great nuggets too if you just have a little, a little bit of time and you want to just do a deep dive. So go check them out, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and avoid that huge bill that, uh, that I got. I got one day. Okay, so there was a thread over on our Linux that kind of got me wondering. Uh, it said, "Is you know, what's the state of uh, VR uh, for the for the Linux desktop? Uh, what do we have? I three on multiple monitors, those kind of things." And there was a couple of different answers that came out of the thread, but one of them, Wes, was kind of intriguing. It was a Qt five or Qt five based three D Wayland compositor. Oh snap! Yeah. So what this now this is totally early days, but what they have designed is sort of a Wolfenstein style layout of a of a of a map and in each room is a different virtual desktop. So when you go between rooms, you're going between virtual desktops and you have like different windows and then you can, you know, you would have perhaps like a bot in there, Wes. You know about bots, Wes? I have should, you heard about yeah, bots? I have. Yeah, well, you could have a bot in there and things like that. Oh, look at that. So that's that's one representation of it. Uh, but there's, there hasn't there's, – there's not a lot of progress. There's not a lot of progress for the Linux desktop. Um, no, uh, HoloLens SDK. No, Hackaday.io has a great one um, that they posted back in 2015. Uh, where they had like a, a couple of different uh, a couple of different examples that were that looked pretty exciting. You put the headset on, and now you're doing window management. Uh, and again, another room concept. I've seen a bunch of different concepts. IBX is one that runs on Windows and Linux, but maybe I'm just maybe I'm just smoking the hype too much. Wimpy, do you think there will never be a real use case for VR on Linux? I'm a skeptic. Um. Yeah, but I'm not much of a gamer either. But I, I don't know. Wearing a great big heavy thing on your head, mm-hmm. <laughs> people weren't prepared to wear glasses to watch 3D films. But what about I, what about just the fact that it would be the world's largest monitor? Okay, think about that. Think about you know, yeah. 27 stra- inch monitor, 30. No, the entire room <laughs> is your screen. But strapped to your head, and also until they're completely wireless, you know, you're just tethered. You're just yeah. you know, like a yeah. pony. You know, it's just... <laughs> a pony. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right, Mister Skeptic. But okay, okay. You're probably right. Actually, I'm fairly skeptical myself. I really, I'm only playing devil's advocate. But what about something like a mumble ask, room? Ask Popey. He's got a counter argument. I'm sure. Popey, do you think we could have a VR desktop on Linux in the future? Uh, what? Come on, Popey. Maybe you could. Maybe you could slap. Your Ubuntu phone into a Google Cardboard headset, and now you are in VR uh, Unity. And you know they built in support for Mirror too. They've built support into Mirror for VR in the future. Oh, Bobby doesn't answer. Now I guess he doesn't have an opinion. Sorry. Go ahead. I just left the room to make a cup of tea for my wife, and all I heard when I got back to the microphone was Popey isn't answering. So Popey, that is you are such a romantic. You are a gentleman. Uh, the question was is. You know, Wimpy is sort of an on-the-record VR um, skeptic, you could say. And I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm sort of a VR hopeful but ten- trending skeptic. What do you think? Uh, we were just talking about sort of the lack of a VR desktop, but there are a couple different projects. They're mostly school projects that create a virtual Linux desktop in VR. What about, Popey, I'm just going to throw this out in your face, Ubuntu Touch in a Google Cardboard headset Ubuntu VR Unity Desktop. Your thoughts? <laughs> Can we get our existing desktop working first? 
<laughs> Great answer. That's a good answer. But okay, we're going to go 10, 20 years. In the, no, we're going to go five years in the future. Do you think there could be a VR desktop? I really feel like Linux is missing out on VR, but maybe I'm just sort of getting excited by, I don't know, the tweets of some people that are working on VR. I, maybe I'm just getting hyped. I don't know. I see this as being a bit like the the Tesla. It's something, you know, quite desirable and it might be useful for a small set of people on the planet, but for the vast majority of people, they will almost never see this and therefore it won't be useful for them. Therefore, we shouldn't devote 99% of our developers. Sure, to sure. But th- okay. And it okay. seems like it'll start where a lot of things start where like first in entertainment and then in like particular power applications like mod- CAD modeling or, you know, whatever where they really take right. advantage of there are certain of very very specific 3D use cases for it but then like if i'm looking at a document i can't i you know call me an old fart or lack of imagination but i can't see how a libreoffice document can be improved by the adding of an extra sure. dimension right. i agree with you there i've already got that a plane in a third dimension if i just look at my laptop but i but you, uh, you i could i could agree with you there but there are, could be use cases i mean i'm i think of it as just more screen real estate to be honest with you right and yeah being able to look behind things and look around things is is novel and we've seen demos of this for years and years that guy who strapped a couple of wee motes to his head and did a nice demo of you know being able to move your head from side to side and look around things and get a real parallax kind of view of of things on your desktop it looked interesting but that was years and years ago and nobody ever did anything with it partly because it's kind of impractical would be coolest thing oh sorry go ahead dear devon so i think the use case for documents is when we have the natural voice commands working so you're not necessarily writing the document so a LibreOffice the application definitely is not an application to benefit from it but let's say you are searching your computer and you're seeing the results in a graph window and then you're seeing the other graph available to you and whatever else and maybe you are actually projecting these to what is your reality so it's a, a more of an augmented reality than just virtual reality and now at that point that you're talking with your computer and you're getting the results and they're coming to you i guess now you can have different ways of manipulating this data rather than think of the normal conventional applications that we're talking about Hmm. i think the benefits will be in there Hmm. so no, you're looking at stock or you're looking at the company or you're doing your search and suddenly you are with the data that you wanted for stocks, for example, for that application. And then you can do the math next to it and you can get the result. Right. Producer Q5Sys says that he thinks that uh, perhaps there could be an interesting use case in terms of interface for managing VMs. You're running a VM on a virtual computer in your VR world. So it's like you're really sitting <laughs> that, at that virtual that machine. Fun. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, and it's a cinema killer as well. Yeah, Let's it could be. Out. I agree. Now, when I tried it on uh, the, the most low-end implementation of VR I've tried is on the Samsung Galaxy VR. And to me, it just seemed like a glorified way to watch great movies. Yeah. But it was a great way to watch movies. Janus VR, J-N-U-S-V-R, is something that already works on Linux today. Uh, and it's what they say. It combines the power of the internet with the potential of virtual reality. Websites become immersive spaces linked by portals where users can explore, collaborate, and create content on a platform that builds upon the open internet. Um, and it's so retro in so many ways. It's like how we actually would have visualized the internet to work in the 80s when we did the movies. Yeah, right. Uh, where you go through portals to go to different rooms and there's avatars and people have keys and it is – 
it is so neat in its in its in its intricacy but it is so impractical in its actual <laughs> usability that I find it to be a fascinating experiment. It and it's using um, browser technology. Now, the hardware thing, Wes, you and I noticed when we were looking around, it's like it looks like nobody is taking the plunge on the Linux side and just like trying to see what works under Linux. Yeah. Now, the Vive is just starting to ship, but everybody online right now is asking, does the HTC Vive work? That's the, that's, the, that's the official Steam-backed Steam VR headset. Does it work with Linux? And everybody's asking the question, but nobody's really got an answer right now. Yep. Uh, and you got Google Cardboard, but that doesn't really work with Linux desktop. And oh. Oculus, you know, they could go suck an egg for all I care. Oculus. Yeah, go ahead. And there is a big reason for why in Linux there hasn't been much development. We have usually UGCs with graphics drivers. So yeah. that's fixed. I know. You really can't do anything graphical. I, you know, all I want, all I want is just the game. I just want there to be a standard. I just want it, I want there to be a, a VR standard and games just need to support that standard. And then if I have the hardware that, that understands that standard plugged into my, to, into my machine, that's all it needs to be. I, w- I just want it to get to that level. Yeah. And that's when it's going to oh. be. That's when it's really going to be something. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a little bitterness with the Oculus. It's true. The way they dropped, you know, I backed it because they dro- they had Linux support. Yeah, exactly. And then when they dropped it, uh, it, it you know, and I, uh, I, I, the reason why I'm not a full on skeptic like Wimpy is, and I, I was until I got the Oculus uh, DK2, and when I got the DK2, and um, I know I've shared this story, but when I got the DK2, and I went on this little raft that's floating out on the ocean. And I just sat, I, I just I sat there for I had a chair here in the studio, so it was like I was sitting on the raft, and I had the Oculus here in the studio. So and the studio is um, is is sound insulated, and I had headphones on, so it was like there was no uh, and it's dark in here. There's there's yep. no outside influence. It was it was it was very much perceptually like I was. Um, like I was on this raft, and because I was on a swiveling chair, I could turn my whole body to to turn with with the VR environment, and so it was like I was turning around and looking at the ocean, and I I kind of got like that feeling you get when you're just chilling on the beach. Wow! And when I started to feel like I was chilling on the beach when I'm sitting in my studio in my chair, I realized there's something here. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is, but there, that just gave me a totally new experience. Uh, and that was really something. And so that's why I'm hopeful we figure it out. But right now, the hardware requirements are ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and the Linux support is weak. And the most economical implementation is going to be the cheap stuff built into the phones, yep. which have the weakest graphics and uh, the most disappointing applications. So, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be... Asks, uh, you were asking how much the Oculus is. Uh huh. I think it was about three hundred bucks, but I can't. I can't. I might be. It might have been. It was a. You know, it was one of those like second round fundings. So I don't recall. How How many times have you been out on the raft virtually? Only a few because I've I've been I've lent it out. I've lent out the Oculus since then when they dropped their Linux support. And I'm just thinking you could probably have rented a boat and experienced, <laughs> you know, bobbing up and down on the ocean for real for Fair about enough. the same Fair money. Enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then you get smell. And yeah, that's true. Well, that's virtual reality needs to cold. offer something other than a poor simulation of reality <laughs> to be compelling, I think. You're probably right. You're probably right. Um, Kitson, you had a thought, though. Go ahead. 
Uh, yeah, uh, one more serious thought on this is I just think the VM would is just overkill for most gaming applications and just computer applications, especially in general. Uh, most of the best games that I've played had really simple graphics and they were able to place me in a world where I was more convinced of things True. than a lot of these games that try to force graphics and cinematics on you. Yeah. And it's just... Yeah, yeah, that's true. You are yeah, talking to the true. guy that just got Mario uh, working again on his uh, television at home. Well, in yeah, a funny side effect of that is that because of the power required for VR, the current VR games are less graphically intensive, just like you described. Yeah, that's why it feels like it's going to be a real catch-22 for them to ever actually take off. I will say that uh, Eve Valkyrie demo did seem pretty neat. What was that one? The E Valkyrie. Does that, that new- uh, E3 in 2015? Oh yeah, yeah, They're, yeah. That's an older one, right? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That just yeah. always stuck with me. There's not a lot standing between Linux and having broader VR support because a lot of the engines that that like like the Unreal Engine, for example. Right. You know, if you make a VR game, okay. Here's what here's what it is. This is I'm just gonna I've just got to be I, this is gonna be Linux Unplugged Confession Edition. Uh, I want to walk around the Starship Enterprise. And so, and there is an Oculus VR compatible Starship Enterprise project that is unbelievably detailed, and the man has recreated areas of the Enterprise that you've never seen that, oh, in okay. order to connect it all together, so you can walk the entire thing, including like and, areas of the shuttle bay that are absolutely stunning and compelling. I mean, it is wow, it is transcending. And, and now you've just described something that actually makes it compelling because you can't experience that in the real world. So he took the blueprints to the Starship Enterprise and made them into a virtual world. Yeah, it is. Here, I'll show. If you're watching the video version, I'll show you a little bit. It's pre-alpha footage here, um, and he's been working on it for a long time. He has a Patreon for it. Uh, but uh, what he did is he took the blueprints to make the most accurate representations that he could from like it's about season six or seven, from what I can tell by watching it. Nice. And I am that much of a nerd that I can tell it's about season five, six, or seven. But it's, I, I would guess six, and it is. Uh, it is remarkably accurate. It starts with oh, a. T- this is so cool. It starts with a tour of the shuttle bay. In a way, it shows you how the uh, how um, the cargo bays and the shuttle bays are connected in a way that is brilliant, but yet never demonstrated in the actual show. Um, and he goes and he goes on to show you areas that you are very familiar with. Oh, here's another. He spends a lot of time on the shuttle bay because he's very proud of it. The li- <laughs> and this is all based on the Unreal Engine. So it looks really good, and it's all Oculus compatible. So this is uh, 10 Forward Lounge yes. that he's showing here, and uh, I'll go for it because you know what we all want to see, though, is we, what we really want to see is the meeting room here and things like that. So this is probably going to pulled down from YouTube, but of course it does also have sounds. Oh, man. Look so at that. He's in the conference room, and this is why I say it's like season four, five, six, seven on. It's, it's later on in TNG. And then he had, to, oh. he had to make up this hallway, and he took the old conference room gold chips from the conference room and put them in the hallway connecting to the bridge, which is just brilliant because they, those were destroyed because they used the set in Star Trek VI. Now he's on the bridge. And it's, it is immaculately done. Now you Captain would... Jean-Luc Picard, Federation Starship Enterprise. So I, I, would, I would pretty much, I would die to have yep. this under Linux. Right. Engineering transfer to bridge. The detail. Say, you know. Photon torpedoes arm and targeted. And he walks around, you know, the whole thing. He's got, he's got just about every, he even, oh, he even did the bathroom. 
Look, he even finally did the bathroom. Now, this is based on schematics. There's three shells, <laughs> which is uh, yeah, a nod to a Stallone movie. And uh, he's got three shells in the bathroom, which is just hilarious. You can sit in the captain's chair. Protects fools, little children, and ships named Enterprise. I don't think I'm cut out to be captain. First officer, maybe. And go check out the ready room. It really is remarkable. It's so well <laughs> done. And so uh, there's also there's other air. There are there. One of the things that the uh, Gear VR was really good at was photographic tours of Paris, which I thought was I've never been to Paris. Uh, so I took a photo tour of Paris, and it's not like Google Street View. It's way cooler than Google Street View. And of course, you, you can do 360 degree. You can look around. Uh, that tearing is not in the video, by the way. That's just on my. I'm having some problems with Kwin today. Um, but the tearing isn't there, and the the engine is 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 just you can see the graphics are. Yeah, that I can't wait. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what VR solution is going to provide me this, but uh, I'll pay for it. That's for sure. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So that's what I I want that, but I don't want to have to run Windows. You know, yeah, exactly. Like that's a real conflict for me. I want that in my life, but at the same time, I don't want to have to run Windows. And so we got to get this figured out under Linux. So if anybody out there has tried or it gets their hands on the HTC Vive, you've got to let us know. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> got to let us know how it goes. X Metal, X Metal just comments. YouTube is going to hate this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already got one of my shows pulled down this week, so why not have another show pulled Bam. down? It's only Tuesday, so might as well get two shows pulled down, one a week, one day, one show a week. Why not, everybody? So, yeah, I agree with you, Wimpy. If you make it compelling enough, I could get interested. I think I also agree with the rest of you. I'm not looking to do a VR desktop anytime soon. I'd give it a go, yeah. but mm, no. Just for a desktop would be too much hassle. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's just get the main desktops working. Let's get Wayland out there. Let's get Mirror working. Let's get Unity finished up. Then we could worry about the virtual reality and you know and the whatnots, right? Don't you think? Yep. All I right. Actually, yeah. I might reconsider if I get to use the Nintendo Power Glove. <laughs> bring that all in. Bring it all together. Why not? Let's do it. It's that, so bad. That seems like that actually seems like a pretty good idea. I think you should you should capitalize on that. You might have something there. That will bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Unplugged program. Thank you to everybody who joined us in the Mumble Room. You guys were great. I'm preparing to go out on spring break. First spring break trip with the kids. What? Going to take Lady Jupes out on the road. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. I've uh, I got our Cody installation packed up with media so we can watch TV offline to save bandwidth. And, Clever uh, you. Yeah, watch full resolution. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to join us live, we'd love to have you here. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to find out when this show is live. You can catch it live at jblive.tv. The calendar page will convert to your local time zone, and you can submit content by going to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Why don't you join us for 140 Live next week? If you don't, we got feeds you can always download, get automatically. Thanks for joining us. See you right back here next Tuesday.
was a lot of fun. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We Thank had you. we had a lot of all come together, and I think it made for a nice medley of the unplugged program. I think so. Thank you very much. What was that? Do that the plasma kill shortcut that. Uh, oh yeah, what was that plasma kill shortcut? I, that might do it. Does that? But that probably doesn't restart Kwin, does it? I don't know. What was that plasma kill shortcut? It wasn't on this computer, so I don't have it in my recent history. Oh, that was nice. Wow, it's look safe. at that. It's so bad. Look at my look at K Runner. Oh, that's unusable. That's usable. That is almost. not even that is like yikes. Holy smokes. Look at that. That is getting in the seizure territory, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kai records this for a bug report. I gotta yeah, tell we you. We saw that on open QA once. It's flashing as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, channel I, and X and Meso and stuff are you running? Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I have no idea. It'd be whatever the default. I could go bring up. Uh, you know, one thing I do, I did play with is like the Kwin rendering settings, but I don't even know it. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Whoa! Whoa! Oh my gosh! All my icons just did like this little blurry thing for a second. <laughs> little like, holy smokes! This is getting crazy. I wonder if it's gonna make it the show. Now we're gonna, now it's gonna be like a race against the. Uh, so where do you go in? Okay, so I, can, I still can never figure out KDE settings. There's so many freaking... the over and under for Chris's build? So where do I... I guess I'm reloading this machine. Uh, where do I go to find where you configure... Is it not... It's, God, there's so many options in here. <laughs> Desktop is this behavior. on the Bonobo, by the way? No, this is on the Apollo. Uh, where do you go to manage KWIN now? Where the hell is that at? Maybe if I just uh, up there and search, type in window manager. I know, but do you, she, yeah, that is such a cop out. Window. Just start management. typing window and, and how about no, none of that's coming up. Uh, no, not, how about just what if I just type for Kwin? Will that work? Kwin, here we go. Oh, oh, there. Can you see my icons? Do you see that? Look at that. Look at the window management Whoa. icon. Do you see what I'm talking about? Come on, there. It's back now. Yeah. It's listed under one of those categories, but okay. it doesn't say Kwin explicitly. All right. Okay. So let's see here. Uh, Kwin rules, Kwin scripts, task switcher, nope. No, none of this is what I want. I'm looking for the thing where you change what your renderer is in Kwin. Desktop behavior. This is this is this is the problem, really. <laughs> this is really the thing. Okay, compositor, here we go. OpenGL is what I currently have. I'm gonna try 3.1 and see what happens. I mean what what could what could go worse than what's happening now? Nothing. It stopped. It stopped. You see that? Let's see if I can aggravate it. It's not doing it with boxes. It's not doing it with Spotify. I think switching Kwin from... Wait a minute. Nope. It's doing it again. Damn it. <laughs> oh, it's happening again. Although it's not ha- Look, it's not happening on the second screen yet. That's interesting. Oh, now it is. Now it's happening on the second screen. Well, that lasted a good few seconds. That's too bad. Got your hopes up, though. I did. I did. What if I do X render? <laughs> Okay, it stopped. I did X render. It stopped. Now, if I go aggravated a little bit, this is this is definitely a K win issue, though. There's no way about that. There's no this. This is definitely so. Now I'm not using OpenGL as my render. I'm using X render, which I would imagine means it's CPU based, right? Seems to be working really good, though. All right, now I'm not having a problem. Awesome. <laughs> so we'll go with X render for the show. Yay! Perfect. <clears throat> yeah, perfect. <laughs> My definition of perfect, exactly. 